to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're continuing, continuing our series through the book of Acts, and we're in this installment we've titled Beyond. As we look at the church uh, spreading beyond the city limits of Jerusalem and Jesus' declaration that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're seeing this played out in real time as the people of God take the good news about what's happened in Jesus. He came and he lived and he died on a cross and they put him in a tomb. And three days later, he rose from the dead. It wasn't a story that some fishermen from Galilee made up. It really happened. They saw him. And for 40 days, 40 days he came and he appeared to his friends these people who had given their lives to learn from him, to become like him, this promise that he had made to them, you can be my disciple. I'm going to give you the life that I have. I'm going to impart to you my way and my teaching, and I'm going to share it with you, and then I'm going to hand it off to you. And that's what he does. He hands it off to them, and he hands it off to us. Um, we've talked about this several times. Daniel talked about it. So I have two more messages here uh, this weekend in the 30th of June. And so I thought I would just share a couple of confessionals, pastoral confessionals with you about the deepest insecurities that I uh, walk through whenever I preach or lead or whatever. So this is just for free. I just want to give this to you. Since I'm leaving, I can do this. Um, there's a part of my identity uh, as a pastor that's as a preacher, right? And um, I, I take that pretty seriously. I, I enjoy doing it. And one of my biggest fears when I get up and I preach, uh, almost every time I have an irrational thought that runs through my head, and it's this, Ryan, um, your zipper is down, okay? Your zipper is down. And so I don't, <laughs> may, you've probably never picked up on this, but if, if I'm not telling a joke or making reference to something that I believe to be funny, and I see you smiling at me while I'm preaching, I immediately think, and especially when you turn to your neighbor, I immediately think, they're not telling a joke to their friend that they heard. Um, there is something seriously wrong right now. And I, um, I, I, may, I try to just subtly check. And so far, I'm at 100%. But I know one day in my ministry, one day in my ministry, I'm going to get up. And people are going to point and laugh. And, and it will be my moment of shame. Um, preacher is one of my ways of identifying myself. Uh, and there are several other ways that I identify myself in life. I wonder for you, um, not the words that you try to give to yourself, but what are the words that people give to you that mark your identity in healthy and good ways? You know, for, it's Father's Day, uh, and I'll be honest with you, my favorite word in the English language is daddy. There's no better word than hearing that from the mouth of my little girl. Even this morning, she came in and she just said, Daddy. And she got up in my lap and she gave me a hug and she said, Happy Father's Day. There, there, there's nothing better than Daddy. There's nothing better than um, being chosen by my wife and her calling me her husband. There's really, there's really no greater title or an honor that I wear in, in that. And, and I'll just say thank you to you because um, I don't know how it happened, but over the last four years, I know for many people in this room, I, I've become your pastor. And I'm just profoundly grateful that you have called me that and given me that privilege. Those are, those are sacred privileges that I walk in in life. Um, but beyond that, there's a word. There's a word in this text that we're in, in Acts chapter 11 this morning, that comes to define the disciples as the world looks at them and they, they, they give them a title. 
Uh, I'll just jump to the middle of our passage and I'll, I'll, I'll spoil the surprise. It says, at, and in Antioch, this place we're going to look at this morning where the church is being formed, in Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, uh, equivalent to America's Chicago, a pretty important place, in Antioch, a place where very few Jewish people lived, uh, but there were uh, half a million people, many of whom just lived the most immoral, promiscuous lifestyles you could imagine. But this is what happens. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word has its roots in both Greek and Latin languages. Um, We don't know exactly why people called the disciples Christians. Most scholarship would say that they think it was a term of derision, right? It It was a scornful, shameful title that they gave to these this small band of people who were coming together saying, no, 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 no. There's resurrection from the dead, but it only happens in Jesus. There's a way of life that you've been looking for, but it's only found through faith in Christ, by trusting him with your life. And in Antioch, this city 300 miles north of Jerusalem, in Antioch, this city where people would go to Daphne's temple five miles outside of the city and reenact Greek mythology, the story of uh, Apollo and and Daphne and and their courtship with temple prostitutes, people they weren't married to. In Antioch, there was a group of people that God was at work within, and they were given a title. They were given an identity, and that identity was these people are are, are the ones that belong to Christ. And this morning, I, I just don't think as we study beyond, and as we talk about going beyond the walls of even this place, and we think about God's church in the world, I, I don't think there's anything better just to rest in for us, but how did they come to be known that way? What happened as this church was being built? Let's start at the beginning of our passage in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. It says this, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, was the first martyr for the faith. And he gave his life as he testified to the truth of Jesus to Jewish people who thought he was blaspheming. He was telling them that they they had gotten it all wrong and that the hope of Israel was Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And when they were crushing him, they were crushing the life out of his body with stones. They they threw stones at him, but often when they would stone people, uh, they would kind of put them at the bottom of a ravine and drop stones on them, and they would be crushed to death by the weight of these rocks. As Stephen was being stoned to death, the text tells us that people were taking their cloaks and they were laying them at the feet of a young man named Saul the most precocious, brilliant Jewish rabbi of the day who was the chief persecutor of the church. And Saul was giving approval to his death, saying, yes, legally speaking, this is okay. This is a just thing that's happening, the death of this man, and I approve of it. And in our judicial system, in our system of justice, game on, Stephen's dead. And so there was a persecution that arose after that, and believers were scattered all over all over the place, and as they were scattered all over the place, there were believers that went to this area. I mean, these places are not geographically right next to each other, but they're in the same general vicinity, and people go up to this area, and it says that they're they're speaking about the the gospel to people who are primarily Jews, 
But then it says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. So we've seen that word Hellenist several times as we've studied the book of Acts. Sometimes in the scripture, it refers to a Jewish person who's grown up in um, the Greco-Roman world, who lives outside of Judea, who lives outside of Jerusalem, and is brought up not only with instruction in the, the law, the Pentateuch, the scriptures, but also uh, with, with a Hellenistic learning. So they can read, uh, read and speak Greek, uh, they can write, um, and they have the rights then of a Roman citizen. But here it's referring to Gentiles, non-Jewish people that they go to and they start talking to about Jesus. Now this is a really new development within the Jewish nation that this would happen. So these people are taking this sect of Judaism to Antioch and they're not just going to the synagogues. They're not just going to people, their fellow countrymen, but they're, they're going to the Gentiles, these pagans, these people who are licentious in their lifestyle, who just live just wildly evil lives. And they're saying, this isn't just for us. We've found hope. And we want to share it with you. We want to tell you about the one who saved us, the one who's making us who we are, the one that we're following. We want to tell you about Jesus. And so they go to Antioch and they start reaching out to Gentiles. And they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So local churches, for the first portion of the book of Acts as we've been studying, it. The church has been anchored in Jerusalem, but there's a local church that's growing in Antioch. A group of people, a church, is a group of people who have put their faith, they've put their hope, they've put their trust in Jesus, and they come together as a, as a community of people. Not, they, don't, they don't say, you know what, we need a property if we're going to be a church. Uh, they come together as a community of people, and they become the household of God. In the Old Testament, there was the temple, and the temple was built brick by brick, stone by stone, and the presence of God dwelt in the temple. In the New Testament, the presence of God comes to earth in the form of his son, Jesus, and when he dies, he puts his spirit inside of all of his people, and we become the spiritual household of God. So we are God's building, Paul calls us in one of his letters. We're, we're his building, uh, metaphorically speaking, as a people. We're the household of God. And God begins to build a church in Antioch. And a lot of the focus of the book of Acts now shifts to this place where Paul, who's going to come in just a minute, is going to base his missionary journeys out of. And a lot of the activity now moves and shifts to Antioch. But God's building a church. And that church isn't built overnight. It's not, it's not already there. They go to Antioch and they spend years there. Now here's what's important to remember as we read the Bible. So often I read the book of Acts and I think, man, there, there's a lot going on in a very short amount of time. But between Stephen's martyrdom and this persecution and where we are now as this church is being established, probably there was a period of eight to ten years there. So there's persecution and these believers are scattered. And for a long period of time, they just go and they preach the word to people and they start to form a church. And as they form a church, word gets back to Jerusalem, and here's what happens in the text. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, I love this guy, Barnabas. It's not his name. His name isn't Barnabas. His actual name is Joseph, 
But earlier in the book of Acts, as the church has needs, he is from Cyprus, and Barnabas uh, sells some property that he owns in Cyprus, and he comes to the, to the apostles in Jerusalem, and he takes the proceeds from the sale of this land that he has, and he says, this is for the kingdom. I, w- I want this to be used for the kingdom. I want to support the saints. I want to support the work of the church. And so it says they gave him a nickname, Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. I don't, I don't know if you've been given a nickname, but some of us get bad nicknames and some of us get good nicknames. Um, and, and, and Barnabas is what he's known as throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch. And in verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So here's what's cool. The Jerusalem church at this point is not the church that has all the answers and knows it all. Barnabas goes and he says, God's at work all over the place. That's really important for us to remember because we can become so idolatrous in our relationship with any local church. We do this culturally sometimes in America, but we do this also with our particular churches. Like, this is why many of us have gone from church to church to church to church because we're looking for a church that has it all together. And let's just be clear There are no churches that have this whole thing figured out. The church isn't a group of people who have arrived with all the answers to help you become enlightened spiritually and to meet every single need that you and I have ever had. The church is the community of the saints come together, committed to take the gospel to the world around them. And that's who we've been called to be. And God wants all of us to be a part of what he's doing in the world as we bring Christ to a lost and a hurting world. And so Barnabas comes and he's like, yes, this is great. This is awesome. Let's celebrate what's happening here. It's not just about what we've been doing in Jerusalem. It's even not just about our ethnic pride. God's doing something amongst the Gentiles. That's a huge shift culturally for somebody like Barnabas and any Jewish person to make. So he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So in this community that we're a part of, this is what matters in our leaders. What matters in our leaders is not their gifting. It's not their capacity. It's their character. What God wants from all of us who are building his church, what he wants to do is not just something through us. First, he needs to do something in us, in us. And God wants to call you um, not just to a destination, but first and foremost to himself. First and foremost to, to get close to him and to never, ever leave there. You know, Daniel talked about this. I'll talk about it. One of the great things about kids are that we raise them and they become more autonomous and self-directed. We, we all want that as a parent. Um, we, most of us do. Some of us want them to depend on us forever, but, but most of us want that as a parent. We, we want our kids to, to um, you know, go get their own water and to, to learn to pay their own bills and to do their own homework. But I'll be honest with you, last, uh, the other night, not last night, but Friday night, uh, the U.S. Open was on late, and this is a great weekend. I, I, I love that they have golf on it's just, that's, all, that's what I do for Father's Day. I watch golf for like eight hours a day. Um, but the U.S. opens on Friday night, and Mim and I come home, and she says, Dad, I want to watch it with you. And my favorite moment of the whole weekend, um, and I'll just tell you that we had been going through this with one of Mim's 
things in life that I was trying to get her to say, I'm not going to do that for you anymore. I want you to do that, right? This behavior. So we were walking through that as parents, and Liz and I were both reinforcing that to her, right, Liz? Yes. We were both reinforcing that to her, and she was accepting it. But my favorite moment of the day was at 1030 when we were staying up late. She got tired, and she said, Daddy, um, I, I just, I just want to snuggle with you. And she got up on the couch, and she put her head right here as I was sitting in the nook of the couch. And then both of us, within 10 minutes, fell asleep. And Liz came down and woke me up, and we put her in bed. And that's exactly what God wants from his leaders, from his people. He, he wants us to grow. He wants us to mature. He wants us to step into our giftedness. But at the same time, he never wants us to get away from his side in the process. So Barnabas, okay, so a great many people were added to the Lord. And so then this is what he does because of that. So Barnabas then goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And then where we started, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians for a whole year. So Barnabas needs help. None of us None of us can build God's church alone, and that's very evident in the passages all over the book of Acts, and Jesus always sent people out in teams. So we came here to this campus, and we were a team. We launched this community. We planted this community in Matthews, and it happened because we've been a team the whole time. We've been a team. This has been a team effort, 100%. No person gets credit for this. God built this community through us, and it's been really fun. And the next phase, the next chapter, if God leads you, and I, I hope he does, is to go to this community in Idlewild and to be a team. And to find people who will build up the church and disciple people and walk with them as they grow in their faith. To be a team. And they get, he goes and gets Saul and he brings him from, back from Tarsus again, eight to ten years after Saul uh, becomes Paul and is converted and given this call that he's going to be the greatest missionary the church has ever known in the history of the church. He still is. He still holds that title and he always will because uh, he got to write a lot of books of scripture. So he's always going to hold that place uh, in church history, but he becomes the greatest missionary the church has ever known. But it doesn't happen the day he gets called to that ministry. It happens and starts and begins a decade later, and at that point, he's ready. He's, he's mature. He's seasoned. He's grown. He's waited. There's something so great that happens in waiting. I, I know this because I'm experiencing it. It's also not fun, but there's something that's so great that happens as Paul's being prepared for this ministry, and Barnabas comes. Can you imagine that day? I mean, have you ever had a day when you've been waiting and waiting and waiting on a season to end, and it just seems like it will never end, and then Barnabas is outside of the house, and his family says, hey, Saul, somebody's here to see you. And Barnabas says, I need your help. I can't do this alone. It's time. Let's go. Let's do this together. And he takes him down to Antioch, and they spend day and night, day and night, day and night. What do they do? They're forming people as the church. They're teaching them. There's something incredibly instructive there for us. We come together in these sacred rhythms on Sundays, and Church is not a, it's not a, it's not a service that you attend. It's a community that you and I are a part of when we come together and we worship. But in corporate worship, something amazing happens in this conversation that we're having with God. 
We see his revelation and we respond in worship. We see his revelation and we respond in faith. We see his revelation and we respond by repenting. Something incredible happens in this conversation. God forms us. We become more like Christ. We're discipled in that process as we come together. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that you learn to feed yourself as a disciple outside of this gathering, okay? We don't do intermittent spiritual fasting here. That's not our practice where we just, you know, we come and we eat as much as we can on Sunday and then we don't eat the rest of the week, spiritually speaking. We don't take in anything from God and then we just wait till the next Sunday and we're so hungry, just eat again. We don't practice that here. What we practice, though, is something that's to be formative for the way that we think about faith. I mean, just one example. This is why we teach through books of the Bible, We call it expositional teaching. Do we do that because we're curmudgeons and we don't like topics at all and we don't care about felt needs? No, we do it because God spoke to us through these authors and these authors wrote books and these books have a context and the context of these books fits into the greater context of the Bible. That's what it means to read God's word. It means to read it not just for what it is but to read it for what it is in total. And so then it's not without surprise that it was at Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Let's think about Paul's pattern of ministry. Um, I'm going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is when he came to Corinth, but I think this is what Paul did here. I think he had been preparing for this, and he was ready. He's writing to the Corinthian believers, and he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom, which he could have. Paul was probably the most brilliant Old Testament scholar or one of them alive in his day. He was. He could have came with wisdom and he could have came with lofty speech, but he didn't. He chose not to. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul's whole life Paul's whole life, his whole manner of life when he comes anywhere is everything is built around Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. I'm going to draw a circle around that cross, about around what that means, and around the totality of it in light of our story as a people. And that's all I'm going to choose to build what I do upon. I I, I resolve. I'm not going to know anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then verse 3, how does he do it? I was with you in weakness and in fear And in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but the power of God. So Paul came vulnerably, and he said, I'm broken, I'm needy, I don't have all the answers, I don't have it all together, but I'm going to give you what I do have And I'm not even going to give you what I have. I'm just going to give you what's been given to me. And that's Jesus and him crucified. And that's what I'm going to offer to you. That's the same thing that we're offered today. I mean, life is complicated. There are a thousand things that you want to do this week. You would like that to happen instantaneously. You would like your spiritual life to happen instantaneously. But that's just not the way it goes. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified crucified. That's what you need and that's what you want. And so then they build the church up and look what happens at the end. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. 
And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so last thing is that churches need churches. I said this already, no church has it figured out, but we all need each other. The church in Jerusalem had every reason to think that they had it all and they didn't need anyone else, but that's not what Antioch says to Jerusalem. They, they hear about this famine that's going to come, and they say, what can we do? This has to be our posture as people who are a part of the body of Christ. Now, I want to speak metaculture to American Christians. We're all American Christians, I think, sitting in this room. Sometimes we have a real issue with this because, we, because of what God has given to us. None of it's been earned, right? From a socioeconomic point of view, from an educational point of view, we, we really think we have everything to offer the global church. In fact, that's not true. There are churches that are people in China who are going to bed who gathered today in house churches. I've been to some of them. They gathered today under threat of persecution. They'd be arrested. All of their possessions would be taken from them if the government knew what was happening. We have a lot to learn from those people. We have a lot to learn about boldness. We have a lot to learn about faith. We have a lot to learn about um, community. And so, again, I, I, I want to speak as somebody who wants the next chapter of what it looks like for this community, wherever you go, if it's Idlewild, we're going to be stepping into, you're going to be stepping in that way. You're going to be stepping into a new place, a new culture, a new context. And when you go there, you're not going there just with something to give people. You're going there open-handedly with something to learn from other believers too. When you step into the, into the global mission field and you step into global ministry, you're not going with all of the answers and the solutions and the things to teach other people. You're going there with open hands to say, um, here's what God's been doing in our experience. What's he doing in yours? Let's learn. Let's work together. Let's love one another. There has got to be a collaborative nature to the way that local churches think about local churches, not just in cities, but all over God's world. And certainly for the church in Jerusalem and for the church in Antioch, uh, though they were 300 miles apart, though they were both parts of the Roman Empire, they were worlds apart. They were worlds apart. Let's pray. God, we have so much to learn. And, um, and yet, there's something really beautiful about your call, just, just to come and embrace, like Paul did, a life where we resolve to know nothing, we resolve to care about nothing, to value nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified in a, in a fast-paced um, world where we're saturated, with, we're saturated with messaging from so many different directions. God, we, we can't even identify where it's coming from half the time. Would you just speak to us again through your word? And this identifier, what, what, what if people would say this about this community, about, about us? Oh, those are Christians. Whether that's scornfully or not, that we would be identified as the people of Jesus, um, that would mean everything for us. So we humbly ask you, God, to lead us in that way. And for those who are far from you right now, 
God, my prayer is that they would just be able to take the next step toward you, toward trusting you, toward following you, and toward engaging with your way in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.